um, anything like that. And we'll just skip over the the delicious irony that it's three white guys talking. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Thoughts. My name is Alexandros. And my name is Hamish. And today we are with the wonderful Bjorn Fraser, who is a independent researcher at Knoxville, Tennessee. Here are some thoughts on superiority. Bjorn, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you. So the first thing we want to know is maybe just tell us a bit about yourself. Where Whereabouts did you come from and when did you get into philosophy? Uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, currently, uh, I'm working as an independent scholar in Knoxville, Tennessee in the US. I'm actually um, born and in, trained in philosophy in Germany. I studied in Kiel and in Berlin. Um, I decided actually when I went to school that I want to start um, studying philosophy because I was always attracted to a couple of the big questions. And very early I was concerned with the problem that philosophy does exclude a lot of people, either be it because they are not intelligent enough, whatever that means, or because certain groups were excluded. But my current topic or the topic that we want to talk about today is something that just a couple of years ago I realized it has to be the main research area for me because um, I was mostly being blessed by being able to go to a conference in Africa where I realized by being told firsthand stories of lived experience of colonialism, of the drastic effects that this still has in today's world. And uh, I realized that I involuntarily, as somebody who has inherited this kind of culture, still continues to keep this kind of suppression alive. And that's sort of my waking up experience. And since then, which is probably five or six years ago, um, I started to um, reorient my research on questions of racism and colonialism. So how does one think critically about these issues? Um, what's the, I don't want to um, say methodology, but how do we approach these issues? Uh, what I think has to be done in the first place is something that is uh, especially in the continental European or in the in a more broader sense in the analytic tradition something that has been disregarded a little bit which is a very personal approach to it. I think without experiencing and without without allowing yourself to experience a very personal involvement in these issues and without understanding that you are personally an agent in the continuation of um, oppressive traditions I don't think that you can have an appropriate angle with regards to this topic. It is, from my understanding, not possible to have um, an objective view on this. This is a matter of people actually suffering, and this is a matter of you actually engaging in the continuation of suffering if you want it or not. It is one of the foundational problems of these studies that a lot of people say, but I'm not racist, I'm not, as I like to say, I call it, I'm not a superiorist, I'm not a sexist, but you have to understand that if you live within a society that is founded on superiorists, be it sexist, be it racist, be it ageist, or whatever the whatever it is, if you live in a society that is systemically founded upon that, and you, even without your doing, are within the privileged group, and you do not fight that privilege, you will continue to stabilize this system, which is 
I think, a very important initial thought to have before you start working on it. So Bjorn, um, let's just back up a little bit. Uh, you have said in some of your work that you think the history of philosophy is, has been corrupted. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, um, I think I might need to rephrase that. I'm not sure if the history of philosophy has been corrupted. Um, I think that would be true, at least with uh, the so-called Eurocentric, or what I like to call Eurocentric or Western philosophy. That has been corrupted, I think, as of the Enlightenment. The question if philosophy in itself is corrupted would be sort of the question if, if the human being is corrupted in a certain way. I think that's a question that's a little bit too big for me to answer, so I'm going to focus on the, on the smaller issue. What I um, what, what I'm most offended and most irritated by is that in the historical period of the Enlightenment, and that is true for the French, for the British, for the North American, or the German Enlightenment, is that it was this time period where we developed most of the foundational values that we uh, eulogize until today. For example, freedom or autonomy um, or democracy. And it was during this time that Europe continued um, his subjugation of the rest of the world, or not to, not only Europe, but also, uh, of course, North America. And the strangest thing to me is the blatant um, ten or the, the, the obvious tension between, on the one, one hand, the development of the thoughts of equality, as we can see, for example, in Jeffersonian politics, or as we see, for example, in Kantian philosophy, on the one hand, and the very obvious injustice that has been done on the other hand, for example, um, and most importantly, in my research in the, in the way that the Western world colonially enacted the rest of the world or a large portion of the rest of the world. Uh, I think it's especially apparent when you look to North America and you see this weird situation of actually a double homicide, uh, a double, I'm sorry, a double genocide that um, people who were religiously persecuted fled to another continent committed an, a genocide on the people they found there and then to build up their very own country shipped in the next uh, another amount of people to commit sort of the next genocide to build that country to what it is today and one has to ask the question if it is only possible to become a western nation if it is only possible to become uh, um, uh, a political body that is founded on Western ideas by committing these kinds of atrocious violence, should we have become what we have become? And when I look into the Enlightenment period, I don't find that critically approached. I usually find a large amount of very forced argumentation why this is technically true. And I think usually that has to do with the fact that when Enlightenment philosophers, and I know I'm generalizing here a little bit, but very often when um, Enlightenment philosophers talk about the human being, there are some implicit, tacit um, premises that are, that are applied to that concept, which rule out a lot of the human beings we would in the first place think are integrated. So if you look closely into the people who are admitted to the project of Enlightenment, for example, within Kantian philosophy, you very quickly realize that the Zapara Aude is actually something that is presented that should be applicable to all human beings. But when you look closely, you realize 
that Kant very often does not talk about the human being. He talks about reason and the interests and needs of reason. And that indeed has a deeper meaning because those who are not able to make good use of their reason in his understanding are excluded. So that means people who do not use their reason in the way Kant thinks you should use your reason, your reason are no longer included. And that, for example, extends to women because women are not in the sense, uh, are not in the required sense uh, able to make use of their reason. And it, of course, it also excludes usually all non-white people and it excludes all non-heterosexual people. Bjorn, you're talking about um, how Kant was using his concept of reason um, to delineate between what a human is and what a human isn't. Um, and, and so I, I think the question that arises is, would we be able in a discussion with Kant, would we be able to persuade him that a, a woman, somebody who does not look like him or does not act like him was a person, was a human being? Um, that's a that's indeed a very good, different uh, difficult question. Uh, um, I don't think he would doubt the humanness of that person, but I think it's a human in a lower sense, and it is a human um, that cannot that, that is not yeah it would be a human being not being able to self determine his his or her or their character which is rather an important um, feature within Kant's philosophy to become fully human. So I think what these philosophers of the Enlightenment and Kant, that, that includes Kant, usually do is to have a gradual understanding of what a human being is. So there's no dehumanizing in taking the humanness away from the human beings. But there is a more or less um, a graduation included in what they understand as a human being. And the ongoing question that I'm um, unable to answer until today is why did they do that? Why do they have, why do, why do human beings at the same time have this weird inclination to not be superiorist or to not be racist or sexist? Because it's very rare that you, until today, find a human being who openly admits, I'm a sexist and I'm at peace with that, or I'm a racist and I'm at peace with that. Usually you find people who deny that they are these things but at the same time we find racism or sexism everywhere but it is always when you look at the specific situation a misunderstanding or it is um it was just a joke or it was an exception to the rule because you usually don't do that and in a strange thing on a on a sophisticated philosophical level we find that here already so I, as to answer your question, I don't think Kant would deny if you show him a human being that that human being is a human being, but he would apply some sort of gradual scale. And that gradual scale usually is the lesser or the fuller human, or I think in a more prominent way in the Enlightenment it was formulated, especially in Hegel, it is the child or the adult version of a human being. Could we get some more examples of, of that? So. Um... In some of your papers, you were quoting Hume, um, Rousseau. So it, how did other philosophers of the Enlightenment um, apply this gradual um, uh, scale to humanness? And a sort of follow-up question as well would be, 
um, does it have to influence their other uh, philosophies of equality and freedom, such as Kant's categorical imperative? Uh, yes. Can we not just ignore the, the racist rants and take yeah. the good stuff? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, so to try to answer that first question, um, so there's a, there's a famous footnote in, in Hume's on national characters, um, which is especially interesting because he added it in later editions, uh, where he points out the inferiority of what he addresses, um, of the people he addresses as Negroes, which of course I'm only using within the court here. Uh, and he points out that he has never seen any Negro of having any cultural impact or having produced anything of cultural relevance. For example, he says, uh, there are Negro slaves dispersed all over Europe, of which none ever discovered any symptoms of ingenuity. Though low people amongst us and distinguish themselves in every profession. In Jamaica, indeed, they talk of one Negro as a man of parts and learning, but it's likely that he is admired only for very slender accomplishments, like a parrot who speaks a few words plainly. I think that is that is a fairly bold way to show the deeply rooted understanding of people different than the philosopher or that, that differ in the understanding of the philosopher compared to, to his self-understanding. But usually people tend to argue that these texts are outdated, that it was just the way you thought at that particular time. And I think the most important question is indeed, what does that mean for us today? It is, uh, it is irritating, it is strange, but cannot just be, uh, can it not just be thrown away and can we not just disregard it and focus on the more important points of the philosophy? But the question is, why, why do we consider some things more important and other things less important? And I think sometimes it has, in fact, to do with the fact that we consider some things, some things are things that we are more comfortable with and some things are things that we are less comfortable with. And I think sometimes what we regard as the more important thing is also the thing that we regard as the more convenient or the more comfortable thing, or the thing that we're more comfortable with. But I think the problem is not that we already know that the inherent superiorism that we find amongst philosophers of the Enlightenment does affect us today. I think what the scandal is, is that we do not know that. And that we do not know that is because there has been too little research on that. So the, the problem I try to point out is if somebody, for example, Kant, thinks that women are not able to make use of their own reason in a way that they are able to become adult for humans. Doesn't that also mean that the whole thoughts, feelings, understandings, ways of world building, ways of world making of female human beings are disregarded? And does that not also mean that if all of that is disregarded, he did not take it into account when he was talking about his ideas of human reason. And if he talks about human reason, then we have to understand that he didn't actually talk about human reason, but only the relevant, the significant human reason, which is the human reason in the way sort of he found it in himself. And if um, women are taken out of this equation, then we do not have in the end a critique of pure reason, but then we have a, a critique of pure male reason. Is that still an interesting book? It is still an interesting book. It is still a valuable contribution to philosophy. The problem, I, yeah. Sorry, I, I was just going to say, like, 
Um, it seems to me the philosophy is constantly being updated. I, I remember a, a quote about continental philosophy that all philosophy since Kant has just been basically replying to Kant, updating Kant, making his system better um, mm -hmm. and improved. And can we not just say, uh, you know, there's lots of current day philosophers that are Kantians, mm -hmm. but who will disavow that kind of view. So can we not just update his systems to make it better? Yes. But the, the question is, so um, I'm, I'm not sure if I agree to, to modern philosophy just being updates to Kant, but of course, nobody can deny the massive influence. There's no doubt about it. And I would not deny that. And I will also not deny his importance for the history of philosophy. The question that I'm asking, which I think is not answered and is not asked widely enough is, if he had these opinions, how can we be sure that these opinions did not influence his philosophy? And I'm not explicitly not saying that they did. I assume they did, but I cannot prove that. But I think we would need to check that. And I think we need to check that because the Western world, as much as it tries to establish, it continues to establish itself as the moral authority of the world, is at the same time the great murderer of the world. There has been, it's literally oceans of blood that have been spilled in our name. And we need to understand how is this possible at the same time. And I would think maybe it is worthwhile to do some research on the fact that we continue to push aside that we have these blatant, racist, sexist, superior ways of thinking in the foundational documents of our philosophical self-understanding. So what I'm trying to say is, if Kant was indeed somebody who looked down um, upon people of so-called other races, and that has had influence on the way he developed his further understanding of a human being, and thus his further understanding of what a human being ought to do, ought not to do, or human reason works or how his whole political philosophy is set up then we have to figure out if the superior superior thinking has contaminated the other philosophies and if these other philosophical bits have been constructed on the one hand blatantly disregarding the experience and world understanding of a large amount of human beings and if this philosophy on the other hand has been contaminated by not only ignoring people, but by willingly ignoring these people, because for some reasons they are not, their experiences and their thoughts are not valid to be taken into account. And that has influenced the political understanding of, for example, freedom or democracy. Then it would not be a surprise if this heritage would still have taken, would, would still have a practical effect today. And so let's think, let's talk about a bit about yeah. this concept of um, I think you call it superiorization. Yeah. Could you explain what that is, and yeah. then maybe if you can explain maybe in detail how it still impacts the world around us today? Yeah. Superiorism is a concept that I try to develop to find sort of an umbrella term that covers all the concepts where people put themselves above other people or where, pe where human beings put themselves about other things or about other non-human animals and so on. So we have all these concepts of racism and sexism or speciesism or ableism and so on. And the problem very often is that 
for example, in Khan, he still puts himself over another human being. And strangely enough, this putting yourself over another human being usually goes together within the Western paradigm as being allowed to rule that other human being or that other entity. I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm really struggling with. <laughs> Don't <laughs> no, worry about it. I, I, no, to be I'm very honest, so the so the problem here, to give you a little background, why I'm trying so much. Yesterday, I gave a lecture on superiorism. Okay. And it went pretty well, but you know, it brought me to to a new level of reflection where I'm now doubting much more than last week my concept of superiorism. So, um, on the one hand, it is a very it's a very trivial uh, concept because it tries to point out that there are human beings who by choice, by their very will, put into existence um, a hierarchical difference between themselves and other people. And they do that based on different real or alleged facts that they find in their lives, which is, for example, that somebody is different in one or the other way. And these differences can be differences of money or of age or of whatever that actually is of race. And usually when people find these differences and they understand themselves as the one and the other as the other, there's a strange normativization of this relationship. So the one is not only the one and the other is not only the, the other, the one is the better one and the other is the worse one. And this relationship, this normative inferiorization, this contempt that we see there can be a contempt that is based on different allegedly observed criteria. And then what happens then is that the person who identifies themselves as the one superiorizes themselves in comparison with the alleged inferior. And I think that is a structure that is very prominent in a lot of societal phenomena. And I think that as much as it is important to differentiate between different forms of superiorism, I think it is very important that we understand that there's an overall identical element in all these structures of subjugation or of oppression or of putting people down. And I think this is important in a broader societal scale because I'm very sure that if we allow certain forms of content, certain forms of superiorism within society, we will not get rid of other forms of uh, contempt or superiorism that are also prevalent in a certain society. That we need to understand that between all these, that amongst all these ways to inferiorize people, there's a structurally identical core. It is something that we do. And I think if we do not um, address, or if we do not, yeah, if we do not sort of concentrate our forces of overcoming this on this structural core, we will continue to have a problem. And I, this is why I think that, for example, an anti-racist movement has also at the same time to be anti-sexist. And it, from my understanding, it would be a movement that at the same time would also be anti-species. What we have experienced so far in the world is, for example, for some reason, men were able to subjugate women. And of course, I, I, I lack the ability to understand why this is something that humans seem to do and why there's an urge to do that. But what we do see is that there's urge, also an urge to not do that. But my point is, I do not like if somebody addresses this and says that's just the nature of the human being, that's what we do. From my point of view, 
at some point, it was made a choice and that choice perpetuated and became a tradition. But if we could choose to do this, we can choose to do otherwise. There's no inherent um, natural necessity that make, makes us look down on other human beings. So before we ask, um, how can we do that? Before we ask, how can we prevent, how can we uproot superiorism? So you said that yesterday you had a lecture um, uh-huh. on superiorism. And then after the lecture, you entered the stage of reflection and, and some thoughts occurred that maybe um, you could tweak the original concept. So I just wanted yes. to give you a, a, a chance to talk a bit about that um, and, and give us a rare opportunity to see the mind of a <laughs> philosopher at work. Uh, yes. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, yesterday I was giving a lecture on superiorism. And even though I'm still very drawn to that concept, there are, of course, still a lot of problems. And the major problem I think I ran into is that if you talk about superiorism, it's still making use of a sort of a binary understanding of the world. And usually if somebody points that out, I comment on that by saying that there are two problems. The one problem is I, I, for the philosophical community working on that, we still lack, let me say, a post-colonial vocabulary that lets us avoid these kinds of, of grouping the world, of making different groups uh, amongst human beings or amongst the living entities that we're surrounded by. So even though I think that's a good reason, it's still, of course, it's not really a fruitful continuation of the discussion because it says it's something that I cannot do and that's just the way it is. And the, the other problem that I run into is what I try to do when I talk about superiorism is, yeah, to sort of sneak into the minds of those who superiorize. And of course, if I do that, I probably, to a degree that I'm not self-aware of, I'm not aware of all these traditions that also influence my mind without me being able to acknowledge it. I think this is only possible to be pointed out by other philosophers or by other colleagues or by other people with whom I talk about these things. And I realized that as much as I want to overcome the ground, the very ground that I'm standing on, I still stand on it. And I just realized that this little bit of earth on which my feet rests is just the piece of earth that I will not be able to see while I stand on it. It really came to, it, it was very obvious to me when I, when I tried to give an answer to the question, how can you talk about, or how can you still apply this binary thinking? And of course, I try to sneak into the mind of those who binarily think. But at the same time, I of course do that too, because I differentiate myself from those who who think like that and, and still think it's good. But I try to not do that in a way that I could- If, if I can interject here, because yeah, sure. I, I, I mean, I understand the concern of adopting a binary um, framework, conceptual framework, and how we um, differentiate the world. But it seems to me that the framework, the binary framework that you are trying to implement or are adopting does not necessitate the inferiorization of the other. So it, it's a purely... Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, yeah, I'm very happy that you say that. <laughs> so it, I get, I, I, if I can expand it a bit, I, I'm, <laughs> it seems to me that you're not saying that the other, the person who implements superiorism in their lives is worth less. It seems to me that that's not what you're saying. What you're saying is that we need to talk to this person or we need to, to 
find a way to move past this because again it's it's very simple and, and very vague of me to say this person because it's not just one person it's a very implicit thing that mm -hmm. it, i myself is part of this tradition mm -hmm. um where we comprehend the world in a binary way mm -hmm. but again you're not saying that we're inherently inferior for believing in superiorism um, so a racist yeah. is not a, a less of a human being for being racist. Yeah, I think what is important here is to acknowledge, and that is, of course, something that, that troubles me, and I think it troubles a lot of people working in this area, is um, that we are all guilty, if one may say so, of superiorism. We all do that. Um, and usually we all do that before even understanding that we have done that. When we meet a person, we usually very quickly realize if we are drawn to that person or not drawn to that person. And I don't think there's a lot that we can do about it other than openly acknowledge that and try to still approach that person as a person or an entity, uh, a living entity, because I really try to theorize about this, not excluding non-human animals, um, that we approach that entity with a certain appreciation of that particular being's being. But what I try to develop, it's of course not a final system. It's more the heuristic. It's the ladder that has its flaws that we at some point probably will have to throw away. And maybe I will be too much in love with that ladder and maybe I will not be able to throw it away. But maybe that thing still gave pointers to those who at some point will no longer need that. And of course, I try to develop a practical or ethical understanding of interactions that does not necessarily require to superiorize each other. So we have to find a way to interact with each other by pointing out the differences. Because if there's one thing that is really not very helpful is if we continue to pretend that everybody is like one another and that we are the same. I think we need to point out that there are differences and that there are differences that we are not able to overcome. It is a foundational difference in your existential self-determination if you think that Jesus is a prophet or that Jesus is the Messiah. That will make a difference and that difference cannot be negotiated with. So, but how do we make it possible that we still are able to talk to each other? and? The one way I think it's not possible by claiming that we're actually talking about the same thing, because we're not actually talking about the same thing. I think we're talking about something that on the existential level is so different that it will lead to different forms, different ways of life. And these different ways of life will conflict at some point with one another. And what I think is impossible to reach is what I like to call an understanding of the material identity of what we existentially find important. By material identity, I mean a unity about the fact, for example, if Jesus is a messiah or if Jesus is a prophet, we will not be able to think the one is right and the other is right. We will, for our very own lives, adopt one of these opinions or, of course, a completely different one. And I think in this case, what we need to do is, because I said it is important to appreciate the differences, is to step back a little bit and understand that this is the matter of the heart and the matter of the heart determines what I like to call our existentiality and the way that we establish existential facts within our lives that will then determine the person who we think we should be. But if we step back a little bit, we can indeed find um, a way of identity, which I think can be addressed as formal identity. So we 
cannot find unification um, with regards to the material um, difference that we find in the matters of our heart. But if we step back, we find a formal identity that this matter of the heart has a, has a, uh, a certain valid importance for that for a very specific person. And if I do not respect you for the fact that you think that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, I will still be able to understand that this is the matter of your heart and that you um, use this particular matter of the heart, for example, adopting the Christian way of life. And then I can compare this sort of the, the formal or functional um, element. I can compare this with the functional or formal element in my life. And I will be able to tolerate you in a positive, not just in a, in a, in a, in a disregarding way, but in a positive way of you having uh, been able to determine your life in a different way. And I can respect that you have um, that you have developed a particular way of life based on that matter of the heart that is different from my matter of the heart. But what is identical is that it is a matter of hearts. So what I've tried to do is to develop something that is very, very raw and has not been developed very far. What, what I try to develop is something that I like to call relative ethics or in relative ethics of the matters of the heart. And this, this tries to, to have its starting point from the weird and, sim and simply not justifiable fact that it, it is philosophically not possible to prove that one person is better than another person, that a black person is of less value than a white person. I think whenever we have done that, we are philosophically not able to produce uh, an argument that cannot be reasoned with. So what I do not deny is, is that there's differences, but what I do deny is that these differences uh, are necessarily to be interpreted in a normative way. Just because two things are different, that does not mean that one of these things is, best, uh, is better than the other. Just because two things are different, that does not mean that this has normative consequences. So what we try to point out with, with relative ethics is that two very different things can be the greatest things without necessarily being um, on a matrix where we can compare these two things with each other. And of course you can say, but will that not lead to millions of practical problems? I'm pretty sure it will, but I, we have to start at some point where we can appreciate what we, we can appreciate one another without this strange um, conviction of actually being the same or of actually being different, but only one of us is right. I think what we need to do is in the first place is to simply acknowledge differences and to try to unlearn that differences implies normative difference. Differences imply differences. And that's it. Uh, so Bjorn, um, how can the field of philosophy um, begin to disappear right? Yes, of course, that's a very difficult question. But I think there's a couple of things that we need to do, definitely. And one of these things is to understand that superiorism is not something that we have been forced to do. It is not an existential necessity that the human being has to apply. I think it is done by choice. I think it is done uh, by choice for a long time, so much that we have had reason to believe that it is our nature. But I think we have to address this and understand that this is not our nature. It is not our nature to look down. I'm speaking from the position of the white heterosexual male to look down on women or on homosexual or on people who are poor. This is not in our nature and we can indeed change that. So the first thing that we need to do is this sort of uh, acknowledging the, as I like to say, the existentiality of superiorism 
and unacknowledge the facticity of it. The second thing um, would be to overcome the ongoing colonial violence. And one part, I've specified this for uh, academic philosophy, is to overcome the colonial violence, is to give up the understanding that philosophy is necessarily Western philosophy. It is a little bit uh, similar to what feminist philosophers have experienced. There's a certain acknowledgement that uh, feminist philosophy exists, but it's rather strange to think that there's philosophy and one subgroup of philosophy is feminist philosophy. I never heard of Andrist philosophy. That specific feminist philosophy was only necessary because females have been excluded from philosophy. And that's pretty much the same thing as we have in the colonial discourse. And it, this is a fascinating thing because feminist philosophy is sort of the anti-Western paradigm within the West. And it, it's structurally very close to a lot of the elements that we find at the decolonial course. So if we want to de-superiorize philosophy academically, we have to open philosophy to all the philosophers, regardless of where they come from. And that, of course, will have a lot of consequences. On if what if we... I can interject yeah. just to, to, to put yeah. a, a sort of objection um, to that. Presumably, in a charitable understanding of the differentiation between the general term of philosophy and the specific term feminist philosophy, mm -hmm. is that feminist philosophy talks about the female experience and, and general philosophy is subdivided into other groups that talk about causality, talk about um, political Ep philosophy. And yeah, epistemology, metaphysics. Epistemology. <laughs> um, however, I... I understand that the problem you're leading towards is that at the moment, the number of female philosophers working mm. in epistemology, working in metaphysics is substantially lower to, mm. to the number of male philosophers. So I'm not sure that the issue, what I, I wanted originally to contend was that I'm not sure that the issue is one of uh, a categorization, but rather is one of representation of the different experiences yes. in philosophy. Yes, I do agree. Uh, but I think that categorization um, is responsible for the representation. So what I think is that if we talk about philosophy, how is it possible that um, female philosophers had to fight the male philosopher colleagues to make their voice heard? The problem is that if we do philosophy, we can focus on certain areas because they are of special interest. But what is usually happening is when we talk about philosophy as it is, we usually talk about a very specific canon that excludes a lot of voices. This differentiation is not just the acknowledgement of a difference, it's, it is the acknowledgement of a hierarchical difference, of a normatively hierarchical difference. The disregard of female philosophers is not a disregard because there are no female philosophers. There are indeed many female philosophers, way less than there probably would have been if uh, female voices would have been regarded in an appropriate way. But there are a lot of female philosophers, but we continue to choose in our curricula and in academic settings to not read them. And it is not because these texts do not exist. They are regarded as of less importance, as non-canonical, whatever it is. So what I think we need to do with regards to desuperiorization of the canon is probably to question if there should be a philosophical canon at all, and maybe approach philosophy more in the sense of trying to learn to philosophize. 
And trying to learn to philosophize is different from trying to learn about the most important philosophers. Who are the most important philosophers? Usually the philosophers who have had the most impact. But if you look in today's world and we have blatant, obvious, evident problems of massive racism and sexism and ableism and classism, maybe we need to question the heritage of these philosophers because these philosophers or many of them opposed more or less explicitly some of these issues. These issues are still here. And maybe we have to ask our question, if there's any continuity, if there's any exchange between what philosophers thought and continue to think and the societal reality, we have to say we probably should question our heritage and maybe critically reevaluate it and figure out why do we still have these problems when more than 200 years ago, we figured out that all human beings are created equally. Perhaps I can just sort of close out with a sort of uh, mm -hmm. nice, easy question. Do you have any, you know, book recommendations? Would you like to plug any of your work, any of your own? Uh, of course, I will, would feel very silly to recommend any of my own work. What I would, <laughs> but maybe the thing that I, I said that how much my philosophy has been shaped by reading. Yeah, how to say that outside of my, my, my comfort, outside of my training zone. That, that's certainly the one thing that I would really recommend. There are different people. Well, talk to them. Read a different newspaper than you usually read. Read a, read a book that you, which title makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. And I think it should be fairly easy to get in touch, be it personally or through any sort of media, um, to learn something that you do not know and to realize there are different ways of looking at the world. And how should you learn about that other than being in what is called an intercultural studies in a polylogue? in being in exchange with a lot of different people. And even if you feel uncomfortable in doing that and choose not to do that, well, the only thing that you would probably have to do then is not feel entitled to comment on everything and all in the world and to not feel entitled to say that this has to be like this and that has to be like that. And if you feel uncomfortable um, getting in exchange with a person that is different from you, maybe you should think about the fact, what, what does that say about you? And in what way does that have an effect on your overall um, interaction with human beings or with, uh, with other living beings? Bjorn, thank you very much for speaking with us. And hopefully you'll come onto the podcast uh, another time. I will. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I'd be honored. Yeah, guys, thank you very much for having me. Um, it was very, very exciting and very challenging for me to talk about these issues. And I thank you very much for giving the opportunity to me to, yeah, to speak to you and thus make, make these issues, which I find very important, maybe a little more now. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.